Hello and welcome to the show. I'm Nina Turner and you are watching Unbossed. And in the co-host seat today, we have Benny Carrillo. Benny is a, uh, a uh, Benny, I don't forgot which thing and changed it. A, a breakdown, the breakdown is a contributor for the breakdown. It's been too long since you've been here. We changed HQ and we got breakdown. But Benny is a contributor for the breakdown and Benny has been too long. It's good to have you back. Yeah, it's good to be back. Yeah, we're really glad and we got a rip roaring show today. We are going to continue our conversation about what happened at the NCAA, how this has really exploded into a scenario by which we are having a somewhat of a national conversation about race, anti-blackness, racism. All from one game. And then Trump is in New York being arraigned. He was arraigned already and the breaking news is that he has pleaded not guilty to 34, 34 charges. So we will keep you posted on that. And on this day, the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. was assassinated 55 years ago. We should reflect on that. All the great work of Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., his contemporaries, the sacrifice that he and Mrs. Coretta Scott King made the entire King family to this very day. 55 years ago is not that long. So we'll talk a bit about that. So let's start off with the NCAA. A storm continues to brew over the LSU defeat of Iowa in the Women's College Basketball Championship game. We reported the anti-black comments being lobbed at Angel Reese over a gesture she made on the court, basically symbolizing the confidence she had about her team clinching the win and they did clinch the win. But here's the thing, just in case you have not been following this story or just in case you were not watching yesterday. Her gesture that she made on the court was really the same gesture that the person she was playing against made to another team. That person is Caitlin. So let's put up the screen grabs that we have here of the two women putting up the same gesture. So one player was lauded as somebody who has grit, a lot of fight and bite and heart. And another player was chastised for not being sportsmanlike, as well as the extra layer that they put on for Angel, that she was not, that she was hoodish and that her actions were unbecoming of a sports person. Former ESPN host Keith Oberman had some comments and we're gonna put those up. We put we shared some of that with you yesterday and he called her an effing idiot. You know what the effing stands for. And then he realized that he messed up rurally. He had a whole series going on about this, but then he realized and he jumped in there and he said, "Oh, I apologize for being uninformed last night about the backstory on this. I didn't follow hoops. I don't follow hoops, college or pro, men or women. I had no idea about Clark. Both were wrong. Now I want you to notice that he did not apologize for the remarks that he made towards Angel. He apologized for being uninformed and he went on to confess he knows nothing about the game at all. Which further lets us know that he jumped into something that he really had no business really jumping into. I mean, the world would have been still a much better place had he not commented on this. You don't have to comment on everything that's happening in the world. But he was so anxious to chastise a black woman, he could not help himself. 
It's called I am white, therefore I have a right to occupy every space in every place because my white privilege deems it so. He is quite the genius. Then if that was not enough, he went on to say in that tweet, there were good people on all sides. Cuz that's basically how he ended his apology. Again, not apologizing to Angel, but saying, well, they both were wrong. They're good people on both sides. Now, he's not the only one that has something to say about Angel. He was not the only one that tried to rake her over the coals and call her everything but her name. He wasn't the only one, there were many. But Angel responded to the backlash, or should we say the black lash this way. Take a look. Here, mm. but when other people do it, y'all don't say nothing. So this is for the girls that look like me, that one that's gonna speak up on what they, they believe in. It's unapologetically you. And that's what I did it for tonight. This was for the more that it was bigger than me tonight. Angel is absolutely right when she said it is. it was bigger than me today. And I did this for the girls who look like me. Amen to that Angel, and that's for all the girls. No matter how young or how young adjacent or how seasoned they may be, you speaking up and standing up and being authentically who you are is for all the girls who look like you. And then LSU President William Tate also came to Angel's defense saying, I think a lot of people have commented and never played sports. Angel Reese is one of the very best players in this country and she plays in a certain way with some swag. If you have a problem with it, beat her. That's all I have to say. If you can't beat her, sit down. That's William F. Tate, the fourth president of LSU. And yeah, Mr. President, you got that exactly right. Benny, any of your thoughts about what is happening? Not so much on the sports side, but really what is bubbling up is some deep seated anguish and anger where anti blackness is on full display. Yeah, 100%. I think really at the heart of this is something that white folks in the United States are actively trained not to see themselves in black and brown folks. And now, what do I mean by this? I mean, fundamentally, like, if you're like a regular person and you see her winning and like flexing her win, like you should be like, yeah, get it. Like, let's go. Like, you know, you love to see people win. But if you are absolutely refusing to like just take part in other people's successes or joys or victories because, you know, because it's like a black person that's winning, well, then that is completely on you. And that is you fundamentally failing to relate to them as a person. And we see this really across society in the way that. You'll have like if you know, if you have like a white woman, for example, that's like freaking out at a grocery store, you'll have a lot of people say, Oh, well, maybe she was having a bad day, or maybe she was this, that, or the other thing. And people are actively trained in our society to put themselves in the shoes of privileged white folks and imagine all the scenarios and reasons why they would be doing and saying the things that they're doing. Unfortunately, our society is specifically structured to actively disincentivize privileged people from trying to enter the perspectives of marginalized people and trying to see their victories for victories, seeing their struggles for struggles and just empathizing on that basic level of like, this is another human being. Why would they behave that they're the way that they are? Yeah, Benny, you definitely hit the nail on the head on that. 
Absolutely that. And we all have to, you know, we have to deconstruct our construction. And we've all been socialized, whether we're white or black or Hispanic or Asian or Arab American or, or all of that in between. We have been socialized to accept a certain group of people's pain as it comes and another set, not not so much. So Benny, I totally agree with you. And if what was happening on that court and all of the brouhaha over it was not enough. The first lady, Dr. Jill Biden, put a whole lot of gasoline on the fire. Now that you are up to date on this, I want you to take a look at this doozy right here, this headline. Jill Biden wants champion champions LSU in Iowa at the White House. See the problem with that, cuz you might be saying TNT, what's the problem with that? The problem is, is that the winner usually goes to the White House and the winner alone. But why is it that because LSU has won, which is a predominantly black woman team, and Iowa lost predominantly a white woman's team, now all of a sudden LSU has to share the spotlight with Iowa. The first lady walked right into that. And in her remarks at Colorado State Capitol, the first lady said the following, I know we'll have the champions come to the White House, we always do. So we hope LSU will come, but you know, I'm gonna tell Joe, I think Iowa should come too, because they played such a good game. Oh, I sighed deeply and as expected, Twitter and other social media spaces went ham. Here is Angel's take on this, the most important take of them all because it is her joke. She is saying this this has got to be a joke because how would you feel if the tradition was one way and because you and your team won now all of a sudden the tradition is going to change and I'm definitely with Angel on this what a joke and since we are and since when are we inviting the losers when are they invited to join the winners ah ah it's not until a black people dominate and that's when the goalpost is moved take a look at this next tweet Miss Green lays it out this way. This reminds me of those high schools where as soon as the valedictorian is a person of color or a woman, they break with tradition and decide to have co-valedictorians for the first time in the school's history. Please don't do this. Yep, Miss Green got that exactly right. Or this comment from Keith Boykins. Keith tweets, no ma'am. When black women win a national championship, they should not be forced to share the stage with the losing team. Black women are the most loyal constituency of the Democratic Party. The White House needs to walk this back as soon as possible. Amen to that, Mr. Keith Boykins. And then my stunt double had to say something too. If Iowa had won, she asked this question, will LSU be invited? We all know what the answer is, it's no. But then the mic drop came from this particular tweet right here. America is trying to treat Iowa like it treated the Confederacy. Go ahead on Anthony V. Clark, you did that. This is a perfect, perfect, perfect reply, perfect analogy to what my stunt double had to say. America is trying to treat Iowa like it treated the Confederacy. And then comes the mic drop right here from Domo. White people are obsessed with forcing black people to win in silence because they think we should be thankful. They allowed us to be there in the first place. 
true that. And then Dario Morrow tweeted the following, has an article right now that I invite everybody to come and read on Newsweek. I mean, written in news for Newsweek. Dr. Biden's stupid comment is a symptom of a larger problem. Black Americans are taken for granted by the very people we put in power because they don't fear any political consequences. My latest at Newsweek opinion. So that's it right there. That is the political basis and wraparound for what is happening today. That certainly the Democrats fear no consequences whatsoever. That is why President Joe Biden felt very comfortable when he was being interviewed by Charlemagne during the 2020 presidential election cycle to say to Charlemagne on that show, if you don't know whether you're for me or Trump, you ain't black. What Dr. Jill Biden has done is very much similar to that, no regard for how black people feel and really no grasp of the history at all. So in summation, this right here, I know I said the other ones were mic drops, but this one right here is gonna seal this up just a bit. Joe, get your wife, <laughs> absolutely that. I don't know if the vice president is on the phone doing that, but I hope that she is. Benny, any thoughts? Yeah, I mean, really, this just goes back to what I said earlier about like the default perspective and how white folks are privileged as the default perspective. And everybody is expected to, you know, like take on the assumptions perspective of privileged people. But anytime anybody from any marginalized community has any different perspective, then all of a sudden becomes impossible to understand when really stuff like this is just super obvious. I mean, because like Jill Biden said, oh, you know, they played such a good game of basketball. I mean, I hope they did. They're playing college ball, right? Right? These aren't the amateurs. Of course, they played a good game of basketball and they lost. <laughs> oh my God. You know? And Benny, to that point, I mean, these were the best of the best competing in the championship. So that little, that simple point that you made is really a deep point. Of course, they played good basketball, but you, you were saying. Um, yeah, I mean, and that, that really is like the whole point, though, is like you have two teams who both played a good game of basketball. One played a better game of basketball objectively. Um, and they're traditionally supposed to be the ones that go to the White House and have like a whole visit and they get celebrated. But all of a sudden, you know, that celebration becomes complicated and uncertain. Uh, when you have the losing team that's more white, where it's like, oh, you know, but they played a good game too. And it's like, yeah, they all played a good game of basketball. I'm sure that everybody playing college ball this year did a fantastic job for themselves. I don't really follow sports, but like at the end of the day, it is just this systematic privileging of certain perspectives. And while it may seem like a small thing, right? Just like accolades in this one instance, fundamentally, this plays a role in courtrooms. This plays a role in the way legislation is drafted. This plays a role in like people's day to day lives, like in every component of people's daily lives. And so like, it may seem like, oh, just going to the White House. But at the end of the day, there's a plenty of people that we're not seeing that their fates are being decided by stuff like this. That's it, Benny. I mean, you you did that. This is symbolic for a whole lot of other things that happens in our society, social, political, economic. That is it. And I love when you said the default perspective. That's it. 
That's it, and that's all. Benny nailed that. And I want to remind you, as I did yesterday, because see, this is a teachable moment. And so the teacher in me is feeling as though I need to repeat the lesson from the other day by reminding some folks and educating others for the very first time how these stereotypes and tropes about black women are rooted in a systemic anti blackness, a systemic hatred, a systemic stereotyping and othering of black women. So if you were with us the other day when I gave this lesson, bear with me. I gotta teach this like any good teacher. Let me just go ahead and repeat this. And I mentioned that, that this matter of treating black women differently in all aspects of society is truly nothing new for us. In public spaces, especially, we are often stereotyped all the time. But the number one stereotype is that we are angry. And what Reese endured, what Angel Reese endured is rooted in a historic anti-blackness and sexism. In an article breaking down stereotypes and celebrating black women, Rowena writes the following. For centuries, the image of loud, harsh, subservient and angry black women has been grossly imposed onto black women and perpetuated throughout the media. Historically, black women stereotypes are rooted in slavery and Jim Crow era. Minstrel shows harmfully portraying black women as loud, masculine, aggressive, naive, subserviently caring and obnoxious. She goes on, the sapphire and the mammy stereotypes have had dire traces on the present lens in which society views black women today, reinforced through daily media consumption. The modern black woman constantly fights the persistent undermining of her opinions and personality as the traits of the angry black woman. Whether it be in the workplace, school, or a relaxed setting, social setting, this trope follows the black woman's every action and serves to invalidate her every emotional reaction. And then this point right here, these stereotypes silence the black woman and are subconsciously internalized by many. And let me add right there, and that many even includes black people. This leads to a fear of expressing themselves freely and often brings disadvantages when seeking new opportunities or positions. A collective and conscious effort must be made to first understand the historical context the stereotype arises from. We must then educate ourselves about our implicit beliefs and strive to create change in how we understand, treat and accept the black woman in modern society. America, sisters, brothers, family and friends, you must learn that lesson over and over and over and over again. And we must work very diligently to deconstruct our construction. Notice I said that even black people can pick this up and use it even against ourselves because it is the predominant narrative. And Benny laid that out so simplicity that we have a default because we were all raised in this country. Those of us who were raised in this country, we have a default socialization when it comes to how white people are treated and then how black people are treated. And it pours out into every single thing that we do, whether it's consciously or subconsciously. So first lady Jill Biden would do well by pulling back her remarks and celebrating the well fought win by the LSC team 
led by Angel Reese. Her and her team played extraordinarily well, put Benny up. And as Benny laid out, both teams are probably good. All teams that plan on the collegiate level are good, but there is a team that is the absolute best. And that is the team that won the championship. Benny, any final thoughts on this? Uh, yeah, I mean, I guess I'll just throw on a random aside about like the history of like how femininity has been defined under the United States and how fundamentally white supremacy, like the white supremacy that defines American culture has really defined femininity and womanhood very much within a very, very, very narrow lens that specifically um, is designed in such a way to exclude black and brown women and where women in yes. the United States are. Yeah. Yeah. Um, put me up, gonna... put me up next to Benny. Benny, that is so right. And I hope you don't lose your thought. And that's why Alice Walker created the concept womanism. You know, or to be a womanist. Because feminism didn't quite fit uh, for black women in this country. But you keep going, you are hitting it out of the park. Yeah, um, well, it's because like, okay, so women in the United States broadly are denied agency, right? But white women in exchange for having that denial of agency are granted this perceived innocence. Where Come fundamentally black on. women are not given that perceived innocence, but are also at the same time stripped of like any agency. And so there's, it's just this, this very complex way in which like, Sexism intersects with racism and creates like the very unique experience that like black women face in the media. Benny, you did that absolutely. That is so so. And and again, everybody picks it up, you know. And so unless you intentionally deconstruct your construction, what I mean by that, to be conscious of that, and then to take a different stride, you know, to go the opposite direction, to be in tune with that. And so many people are not in tune with that. And I can tell you, I have faced that. I continue to face that. Many of my black women friends, we commiserated about it all the time, about how there is a double, even a quadruple standard. And don't even get me started about colorism. Because now when we put racism, anti-blackness, and then you put colorism on it. And for those who might not, who are listening to us today, might not understand colorism. But it is again, that all that juxtaposition in this society to whiteness. So if you are black, the lighter you are, then they, 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 they lift you up just a little higher until they remind you ultimately in the society that you are black too. And that creates another level of struggle within and without the black community. So we got so much to unpack here. Well, the teacher gonna keep teaching. And Benny, you laid that out. Yes, you did. We will be right back after this. I need you to digest all of this. The teacher is gonna teach often. We'll be right back. Back to the show. Oh my goodness. I, I wish you all could listen to uh, Benny and myself. And during the break, we really <laughs> laid out some stuff. And hopefully, Benny is going to write this award winning essay <laughs> that she has on her mind. But I just, I really appreciate you, Benny, and your willingness to, to be totally honest about what is happening here because so few people, especially white people, will tell the truth about what is happening in this society when it comes to racism, anti-blackness and sexism and just the intersectionality between all of that stuff and between racism and anti-blackness too, because there's a global racism, no doubt about it. And then there's this special category called anti-blackness that is juxtaposition on black people's experiences in this country way before this country became a nation. And people just seem to forget that Benny all the time. So I just can't tell you how much I appreciate you and your truth. 
Uh, speaking of the truth, Trump's post arraignment speech coverage. That was kind of an awkward transition, but I'm trying to make it, baby. Get ready for an exciting live show tonight. Trump is giving his first speech following today's arraignment, and we'll be covering it live on the Young Turks. So you do not want to miss it. It will be John and Anna's coverage at 8 p.m. Eastern Time, 5 p.m. Pacific Time, live. YouTube, Facebook, Twitch, TYT. Dot com and all live linear partners. You don't want to miss this baby, get in on it. And don't forget the watch list airs right after Unbossed. J.R. Jackson in the house. Please stay tuned and watch J.R. do the daggone thing. Up to my favorite part of the show, TYT members starting with you, our viewer comments. But I'm gonna start with the TYT members. Dandy Houdini Dragon, hey Houdini Dragon, DHD, you back again, baby. Two of my favorite hosts in one fabulous package, love you both. Well, I think I can speak for Benny too. We sending our love right back to you, baby. And on Twitch, C23, my daughter will forever wear Angel Reese's jersey. I know that's right, C23. I need to get me one of those as well. When she said, this is for all the girls, come on, <laughs> who, who, who are like me. I know that's right, all of them, no matter what their ages are. So I'm vibing with that so much. And on YouTube Super Chat, Christina, <laughs> Benny and Nina look beautiful and all kinds of heart emojis with the smile. Don't be those, strike the pose. Yeah, we do, we are beautiful. Mind, body, and spirit, baby. We not just another pretty face. And Sammy, having Nina host Unbossed is like a breath of fresh air. Having Benny as a co-host is like wind in your hair. Go ahead with that rhyming, y'all better do that. Both a blessing and refreshing. Keep the faith and keep the fight with a heart. Oh my God, Sammy, thank you for that. Benny, that was beautiful. Wouldn't you agree? Yeah. <laughs> it was beautiful. Even they rhyming, baby. That is a beautiful thing. Oh, all right. Here we go. So we're gonna reset right now and take this moment to take this in. Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. was assassinated 55 years ago today. And it's important for us to pause on this day to reflect on that which happened to the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., to his wife, Mrs. Coretta Scott King, and to the entire King family. And then the greater society, both here in the United States of America and all around the world. 55 years ago is really not that long ago on the continuum of history. It is almost as if it happened yesterday. And there are many of folks walking this earth today who were in the thick of that at that time, or who were just little children at that time or barely born. But here we are. I'm gonna put up this tweet from my stunt double 55 years ago today. Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. was murdered in Memphis. In his last days, he reminded us that poverty was also a civil rights issue. Let's remember to uphold and continue his work against racism, militarism, and poverty. And now a word from one of his daughters, Dr. Bernice King. And Dr. King tweeted, it wasn't that long ago. On the 55th anniversary of the day he was assassinated, here are some photos of my father in color. And she took the black and white photos and put them in color. Thank you for that, Dr. Bernice King. I know you've been doing that often with the photographs of your family and we really do appreciate you. And now we're gonna have a word from the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. 
on the changes coming to America. In a 1967 speech at the National Conference on New Politics in Chicago, Dr. King said the following, take a listen. By our very nature, we affirm that something new is taking place on the American political horizon. We have come here from the dusty plantations of the Deep South and the depressing ghettos of the North. We have come from the great universities and the flourishing suburbs. We have come from Appalachian poverty and from conscience-stricken wealth. But we have come, and we have come here because we shared a common concern for the moral health of our nation. We have come because our eyes have seen through the superficial glory and glitter of our society and observe the coming of judgment. Wow, and it really is as if the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. is speaking to us on this particular day, in this particular moment. We are here because of a common concern for the moral health of our nation. Benny, I mean, I get chills up and down my spine every time. I mean, the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. is certainly one of the most eloquent orators. But besides his oratory, he often knew how to cut to the heart of the matter. And even in what we were listening to, he brought in all aspects of society. He talked about urban areas, he talked about rural areas, he talked about poverty, he talked about wealth. And he talked about the fact that this country indeed is going to be judged basically for her sins. Your thoughts? Yeah, most definitely. I mean, there's so many layers to it. And like, that's kind of like really at the heart of it is that there are so many layers to it. And one of the things that Martin Luther King really emphasized continuously because, you know, I mean, Martin Luther King has to be one of the like most misquoted people in history, right? Because you have people from all ends of the political spectrum that want to like, you know, like warp his language in one way or another, right? You have some people who say like, oh, it, you know, it was just about class and it wasn't about race at all. Or you have some people that say like, oh, you know, Martin Luther King wanted a colorblind society, all these things. But the reality is, the reality always has been, is that the message is that there are many layers to oppression in society and that these oppressive systems, they build on each other, right? The white supremacist system that we have, like, perfectly pairs with the capitalist system that we have of exploitation. And fundamentally, you can try to solve one of these problems without dealing with the other problem. But if you don't tackle both of them, then you're gonna find yourself in a terrible situation. Because like, so long as there are people that are afraid of having a racist employer, well, that means that both the dynamics of capitalism and the dynamics of racism are going to be in play in that moment. And that's one of those things where, I think more people need to be like understanding of the simple fact that these are moral burdens on our society. The inequalities that exist in our society are moral burdens that quite literally erode like our humanity, right? Like these, like we were talking earlier in the show about how like the whole notion of default perspectives, it quite literally is intended to eat away at your brain's ability to empathize with other people. And that fundamentally tears at the fabric of society. And so we like, we fundamentally, in order to sort of move forward 
as a country, we need to address all of these problems at the same time and recognize that they are fundamentally linked with each other. Yeah, that's absolutely right, Benny. And we're gonna play a little more of what Dr. King had to say in 1967 again in his 1967 speech at the National Conference on New Politics in Chicago. Dr. King also talked about the inaction of the Congress of that time. And it is baby definitely as if he is speaking today to deal with poverty in the black community. Take a listen. The collision course is set. The people cry for freedom, and the Congress attempts to legislate repression. Millions, yes, billions are appropriated for mass murder. But the most meager pittance of foreign aid for international development is crushed in the surge of reaction. Unemployment rages at a major depression level in the black ghettos. But the bipartisan response is an anti-riot bill rather than a serious poverty program. Come on, Dr. King. The answer, not a serious poverty solution to the conundrum, but, but to deal with riot. I'm telling you, Benny, masterful. Dr. Reverend Martin Luther King Jr. And people don't need us to say that. I mean, just absolutely. And you know what? He was one of the most hated men while he was alive. And so we're talking about it. We're reflecting on his assassination. All the him and his family have sacrificed for the greater good of humanity. And this is both about the black community, but a larger humanity here. But Dr. King was not, I mean, once he stepped out of that so-called civil rights realm, the powers that be, the status quo, the type of latte liberals that we have to face in our time, the the brunch bunch that we have to deal with this in, in this day and age, that was the same bunch he had to deal with back in his time as well. Not not all the way back in the 50s and in the 60s, and also you know he wasn't that loved by a large number of the black community either, who had been socialized to accept the status quo. Just any thoughts quickly before we have to go to our next segment. But I, do, I wanna take the time to reflect here a little bit. Yeah, I mean, this this same exact thing is playing out right now. We're seeing we're seeing people struggling financially to the extreme degree. We're seeing you know violence against black and brown folks from police officers. And the response to all of these problems that we are facing as a society across the country in a bipartisan way is increases in police budgets. And I think that is quite literally the same exact problem that has continued 55 years later. 55 years later, still fighting some of the same problems and we gotta address them, we absolutely have to. So to the King family, we just salute you and lift you. This entire nation, the black community in particular, but this entire nation in general in the world owe you a great deal of gratitude to the Reverend Martin, Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. and Mrs. Coretta Scott King, even though they are in the ancestral plane, their spirits and their courage still guide us to this day. Thank you. Trump is arraigned today. Yep, today was the day Donald Trump was arraigned today in New York. He has been charged with 34 felony counts for falsification of business records. You can see here from Fox News, Trump being transported to the arraignment. You see that right there, that's him being transported. You know what, too bad every other person doesn't get to be transported that way, but I digressed. So now that Trump was arranged today, 
with every news station and their mom lining the streets of New York, the latest. Here's the image of President Donald J. Trump being arraigned from this morning. And that's right, news outlets were not allowed to broadcast the former president's arraignment. Five steel photographers were allowed, however, and that is why we get to see that photo right there, to take pictures of President Donald Trump and the courtroom before the hearing begins. And that's not the only special treatment that the president received. Donald Trump will not be put in handcuffs as the reporting goes, Yahoo News, thank you. Placed in jail, in a jail cell or subjected to a mugshot. Typical procedures even for white collar defendants until a judge has weighed in on pretrial conditions. And I know, I mean, maybe this is how we're gonna treat every American going forward. I mean, if this is the way how, if this is the way every American who finds themselves in a similar situation is going to be treated, well, hello, somebody on that. No more mugshots, no more cameras in the courtroom, no more being put placed in handcuffs. And no more being put in jail before you go before the judge. We're gonna stop all of that, all of that stops today. We are taking it to a whole nother level. And then President Trump, of course, he could not resist, have been very active on true social over the past few days. But before I get to true social, Benny, I do want you to weigh in on this. We talked a little bit about this, I mean, on one hand, uh, the former president is being treated differently, you know, and I guess some of us, some people would say, well, how many former presidents are there? You know, there have been very few presidents. On the other hand, we can say maybe this is a good day for all people, as I said, who are similarly situated, that there will be no more mugshots, no more handcuffing the folks, and no more uh, being placed in jail before you see the judge, and certainly no more cameras in the courtroom. Your thoughts? Yeah, I mean, fundamentally, all this like all this pre-trial stuff, and even during the trial stuff, like people underestimate how much you can fundamentally ruin somebody's life. Like a mugshot, even if you're found innocent, a mugshot can show up when people Google search you, and so that could affect your ability to get jobs and things like that. And so, quite literally, our system is designed in such a way that even though it's theoretically innocent until proven guilty, a lot of people that get wrapped up in the system, and we know disproportionately that it's black and brown folks that are getting wrapped up into the system, is marginalized people get wrapped up in the system more. And so like it is one layer of marginalization that exists within the United States is this whole process of mugshots and things like this. And I guess one point that I do want to make is they said about like white white collar criminals or whatever. What what type of crime actually has more harm in society? Somebody like doing like a petty thievery or burglary or something like that or I don't know, somebody mismanaging a company leading to something like hypothetically a train crash. I don't know, what has more of an impact on society? You know, it's it's funny who the people are that get treated with kid gloves and who the people are that get their face put all over the local news. Yeah, I mean, you certainly bring up a good point. We know globally the white collar criminal is the most dangerous. But in fact, if you are the person that got mugged or the person who faced the burglary for you as the individual, and I know you're not dismissing that for that individual, that's a pretty serious situation. But I know exactly what you're getting at. The bigger the crime, the more global impact that that crime has. And those are the types of people that they treat more gently and not the, hey, treat them like you treat everybody else. I mean, conversely, we can we can say that here, treat them, treat white collar criminals. Because you're absolutely right, you're, you're, take, you're picking up on the writer said even white collar criminals get this and get that as if they're some special breed and absolutely not. They're criminals just 
just like any other criminal and they do have a big, big impact on society globally. So I'm with you on that, Benny. And let's go back to what President Trump had to do, had to say. He was very active on his true social. No surprise there, the president true socials, because I can't say he tweeted, but he true socialed. Why does Fox keep putting on Bill Barr? As attorney general, he was a complete coward who uh, who was absolutely petrified of being impeached, which the Democrats threatened to do until he became their virtual slave and refused to investigate and prosecute the massive election fraud that took place in the 2020 presidential election. By far the radical left's greatest concern, he said he did investigate, but he didn't have the guts to properly do so. And now we have a, nas- a nation in massive decline. President goes on, the radical left. Democrats have criminalized the justice system. This is not what America was supposed to be. And even this morning on his way to an arraignment, the former president heading to lower Manhattan, the courthouse seems so surreal. Wow, they are going to arrest me. Can't believe this is happening in America, MAGA. Now, it's also important to remember how prevalent classism is in this particular case. And 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 now while the 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 brunch bunch, they getting really excited about him being indicted and arraigned. It's probably not. He's probably not going to jail. So just slow down, brunch bunch or latte liberals, before you get too giddy over this. It is also, as we lay this out, important to remember the classism that we see taking hold that Benny and I were just discussing briefly just a bit ago. On top of the special treatment. Trump has raised an obscene amount of money off of this situation. This headline right here, Trump campaign raised 7 million since indictment aid say, says. And they bragging about this because President Donald J. Trump knew that this was going to happen, that his followers were not going to hesitate to donate money to him because they believe that he has been transgressed. I mean, Benny, this, this, you want to talk about surreal. I want to say that what's happening is surreal, but it absolutely is not. And what I want the latte liberals and the brunch bunch to understand that this in and of itself does not solve the many conundrums that we face as a nation. Certainly President Donald J. Trump should face the consequences of his actions and we have other work to do in this country. Yeah, most definitely. And the thing that Republicans are saying about this, I think is really revealing about their mentality more broadly. Because you'll hear them say something along the lines of, "Oh, if they can do this to Donald Trump, that means that they can do it to you. Which really betrays their belief that the system exists to shield them from accountability. That their power, their wealth, their privilege, right, their whiteness is all there to protect them, to shield them from accountability, to shield them from the law. They think that there are other people who should be subject to the law. And then they think there are themselves who should not be subject to the law. So the whole idea and belief about, oh, you know, if they can do this to Donald Trump, they can do it to you, just reveals their underlying reality of the United States of America, which is I think they are correctly assessing the fact that the United States is designed in such a way to shield the powerful and the privileged from accountability, to shield them from scrutiny from the public and the law. And I think that is something that fundamentally needs to change. And hopefully this situation with Donald Trump draws into question the way we talk about 
previous presidents. I mean, maybe we have a look at reevaluating George Bush's role in starting the war in Iraq. I don't know, maybe that's just me. Um, I think the idea of politicians more broadly having this exemption from legal scrutiny, um, having like CEOs exempt from legal scrutiny. This is an entire system that really needs to crumble at its core so that we are all on an equal playing field where we actually have the law mattering for everybody. The law mattering for everybody. Now there is a thought. And now the reaction to President Donald J. Trump's arrest has been loud from all sides. Listen to what former Illinois Governor Rob Boyovich said on Fox News. I think this is the apocalypse of our democracy. They're doing to a Republican president at the major league level what they did to me, a Democrat governor at the AAA level. I went to prison for things that are not crimes. They're charging President Trump with things that are not crimes. One positive thing I suppose you could say about the DA over there, Bragg, is that he keeps his campaign promises. Here's a guy who ran on a campaign promise to charge President Trump. The other thing you can say about him is he's violating his oath of office and destroying the Constitution and the rule of law. And if anybody, anybody ought to be going to prison or charged with crimes for this episode, so it ought to be that DA. Wow, you want to put the DA in jail now, that's something. Now you might not agree with what the DA is saying, but now you want to put him in jail and to talk about this is the apocalypse, really? Is this the worst thing that has happened in the United States of America in the 21st century? Because don't let me start going backwards in time. But are you saying this is the worst thing to happen in the 21st century? I think there are some things that are worse, like child hunger and homelessness. Yeah, there are a whole bunch of other things that are worse, like systemic racism and the systemic failure of this nation to hold the ultra wealthy accountable while others suffer, far too many suffer. There are other things that are more apocalyptic than this, but Jesus, Mary and Joseph, that, that, you know, they, they believe that. And then this is what Representative Ro Khanna had to say. Law enforcement process will play itself out, and I have faith in that. I hope we don't make the same mistake in 2016, where we just start covering Trump's trial and Trump's scandals, and we focus still on the school shootings in Tennessee. We focus on the president's message of bringing manufacturing jobs back, uh, of lowering prices. That's really what the American people want to talk about. And I fear if this just becomes a Trump spectacle 24-7 on cable news, that he's going to benefit in the same way he benefited in 2016. Benny, a rep Brokana makes a very important point. Yeah, most definitely. I mean, like fundamentally, I think we across the board let Republicans define too much of the conversation, but especially when it comes to Donald Trump, like why are we spending so much time talking about Donald Trump? Donald Trump is not the president of the United States of America, right? Why why are we spending all the time doing this? Like I get it that there are people who are like, oh, they really want to see Donald Trump go to jail. I admit it would be very funny, right? Uh, but also, at the same time, there are real issues that we are facing as a country. Quite literally across the country, Republicans are trying to criminalize the existence of trans people. And there are some really great representatives, people like Cori Bush, who are actually standing up to defend trans people and to speak out about the rights of trans people, right? We have real problems like economic issues that we're dealing with. We have infrastructure issues that we're dealing with. We got train crashes happening like every week. These are the problems that we need to address. These are the things that we should be fundamentally focusing on. But I think a lot of the reason why the media doesn't want to focus as much on those issues is because tackling those problems might involve questioning the role that some big businesses are playing in actively making those problems worse.
and the role that mainstream, many in mainstream media are playing as well. Well, we will keep you posted on this story. We will try not to do so ad nauseum because I certainly agree with Representative Rokana on that. Now, not all athletes live the glorious life that we have come to associate with being an athlete. Just ask minor league baseball players, take a look. When a player is first drafted, they are picked up by a team and signed to a seven year minimum contract. That seven year minor league minimum contract entails a certain amount of pay at each level. We are considered seasonal employees, uh, thanks to some clever lobbying by the MLB. We can legally not be paid a living wage. At one point we did the math for the amount of hours that we spent at the field and it came out to about $4 an hour. Now I think it's up to about seven. It still is about half of the going rate considering we work roughly 60 hours a week. The income is impossible to live on. The income is impossible to live on. And so when we think about people receiving poverty wages, I'm sure many of us did not think that the minor league baseball players were among that group. Quite frankly, nobody should be in that group. When we look at baseball or look at any other sport, we do come to believe that everybody's living the high life. There's some good news, if we can call it good news. It's some good news because the union pushed and they were able to, in some negotiations, get a pay increase for those players. This headline right here, minor league baseball players poised to more than double pay with first union contract. This reporting coming from Common Dreams. Kenny, thank you for it. Major League Baseball and recently unionized Major League players working for MLB team affiliates reached a tentative deal Wednesday on a historic first collective bargaining agreement. The pending five year contract is set to more than double the pay of athletes who currently receive poverty wages, even though the average MLB team is worth more than $2 billion with a B. And here's more from ESPN's Jeff Passan who has covered baseball for years. Jeff writes, after years of disillusionment among future minor leaguers about paltry salaries forcing them to work off season jobs. And coincidentally, on the day a judge approved a $185 million settlement, the league will pay players who accused it of violating minimum wage laws. The parties agreed on a deal that went out to a vote among the union's rank and file, and that will need to be approved by owners as well as well before it is formalized. The agreement could be announced officially as early as Friday, the first day of games in the minor leagues. And Jeff broke down just how little these players make and still how little they will make in a tweet. Details on pay increases in the minor leagues. Complex league from 4,000 per year to 19,800 per year. Low A, $11,000 from 11,000 to 26. High A from 11,000 to 27, three. AA, uh, 13,000 and some change to 30,000, and the AAA, 17,500 to 35,000 and some change. Players will be paid almost year round aside from a six week break in the winter. Now, we want you to compare that with the average salary of the MLB players. This headline right here, MLB average salaries rose 14.8% to a record 
4.22 million last season. And that's if these minor league players are lucky, lucky to make it to the major leagues. All of them don't make it. This almost 10% of the approximately 7,000 players in the minor leagues make it to the majors and even fewer reach free agency, making signing a multi-million dollar major league contract nearly impossible. And according to Forbes, all 30 major league baseball teams are worth a billion dollars or more with the New York Yankees topping the list at being worth $7.1 billion. Benny, I know we're winding down on the show. I think we might even have two minutes left, but man, this is something else. Yeah, and this is one of those things where when it comes to professional athletes, right, whether it be the minor leagues or major leagues, fundamentally, the most important thing to understand is that they are workers. At the core, at the end of the day, it is the relationship that you have to capital that determines your position in society. And baseball players, right, any professional sports players, they are the workers that are actually creating the value for these companies. And fundamentally, so long as there is that relationship between employer and employee there, you will have the owners of these baseball teams that want to exploit the players as much as they possibly can. And the players who are actually generating the real value will have to organize amongst themselves in order to demand living wages, fair wages and all those things. And that is why even when you see like professional sports players like fighting for unions, you should support them and not make the mistake of assuming that you know because some of them are making millions of dollars, it means that they're all just like you know these like evil millionaires or whatever. <laughs> Yeah, true that. And I I mean, I did not know how in dire straits the minor league players were. I mean, to not even make minimum wage is really a stain. It is a blot. And they are yet another example as you are laying out. It is about the relationship between the employee and the employer. And in this country, we are really at an immoral level. So whether you be in the minor leagues or whether you be somebody that's serving in a restaurant making sub minimum wage, Everybody deserves to make a living wage at what they do in this country. And we must, we must do a better job. Well, that is our time for today. We want to thank you so much for joining us, Benny. It was so great to have you back on the show. We cannot wait to have you back again. And to each and every one of you, thank you for joining us as you usually do. Make sure you phone a friend or a friend of me. Let them know one of the best hours of their day is spending it with us on Unboss. And you can also get us on video video on demand, so make sure you do that. Now you know what I want you to do about this time. I want you to keep the faith, always keep the faith. And with that faith, we need a little fight until, a lot of fight until next time. Thanks for listening to Unbossed. If you like the show, then you'll enjoy our other podcasts on TYT Network like The Damage Report with John Iderola, Indisputable with Dr. Rashad Ritchie, and The Young Turks. Make sure to listen and follow, and if you like what you hear, give us a five-star rating.